You have all been found guilty of witchcraft and consorting with the devil. If you would save your souls from perdition, repent now and confess your sin. I beg you, have mercy on me! I made ointments for a copper, but it was just pig's fat, not witchcraft, I swear it. Priest? You're gonna burn in hell. Strange things did happen, you know, stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree. Are you, are you coming to the tree where the dead man called out for his love to Hello and welcome to the first episode of History of the Occult podcast. My name is Amber and I'm a year two history student at Canterbury Christchurch University. The History of the Occult podcast is my way of opening a door into all things occult. Focusing on the area of Kent, which is where I currently live and study, but hopefully being able to expand further afield. Now, the meaning of the word occult, it's looking into the mystical, supernatural, the phenomenons that can't be explained. So this means we're going to investigate all aspects of the history behind the supernatural. So this is not limited to, but including witches, ghosts, shapeshifters, demonology, possession, and so much more. And this episode, the first episode, we're going to look at witches. And we're going to look at the stereotype of how a witch was stereotyped. So what we're going to do is we're going to explore the European witch hunts of the early modern period from 1450 to around 1750. And we're going to ask who were the victims of this era. This image of the typical witch has roots, very, very deep roots. However, first published research did not actually happen until early 1970s. Now we're going to look and examine the first, the five key aspects of the long established stereotype, which was founded by Keith Thomas, a Welsh historian, and Alan McFarlane, an anthropologist. In doing this, what will cautiously present a modified profile of an early modern European witch. However, it also questions the wisdom of relying on such stereotypes which by nature do not encourage truly announced analysis to provide us with accurate history. So, the scholarly interest has grown immensely surrounding the early modern European witch hunts in recent decades. However, their focus has been particularly fixated on building an accurate profile of the protagonist. So, according to Malcolm Gaskell, which is an author and professor of early modern history, the argument that Thomas and McFarlane made for their stereotype was convincing. They, they can convince you. Like, just reading it, and I've read it, it is convincing. Now, their stereotype was that witches were usually female, elderly, often widowed, and therefore socially and economically marginalised. Now, not only did they give you this stereotype, but Thomas and McFarlane supported this with use of strong evidence, and this has allowed their hypothesis to be uncritically accepted. Nevertheless, by deconstructing 
this concept, what we're going to try and demonstrate is that Thomas and Macfarlane archetype is reasonably correct in several ways, not going to argue. However, it is also severely flawed in others. Now, imagining their subjects sharing particular sets of characteristics both undervalues the significance of geographical variations. And not only that, it's also a it also undervalues the vast complexity of and diversity of the early modern European people's lives. The Thomas McFarlane classic mode, which was female. Very normal. This is a very popular stereotype. But the difference with Thomas and McFarlane is they backed it up with evidence. So Thomas explains in his book that James I estimated the ratio of female to male witches at 20 to 1. And this was in his 1971 book. Now, Macfarlane also backs it up with evidence from the other side. Now, he brings it in to a geographical sense. So, he's pointed at the fact that women accounted for 92% of those accused in Essex. So, he's brought the geographical sense into the gender, but backed it up with evidence. Now, Andrea Dworkin, an American feminist activist and author of Women Hating, which was published in 1974, grasped onto these claims and took them to the maximum. She cited extensively from Heinrich Kramer's 1487 book, Malleus Malficarum. Now, this is a book that we haven't discussed because this is only the first episode, but it is a book that we will discuss. But just a quick summary so you know what the book is. The book is usually translated as the Hammer of Witches, and it's the best known treatise on witchcraft. It was written by Catholic clergyman Heinrich Kramer and first published in German city of Speyer in 1486. It has been described as the com compendium of literature in demonology for the 15th century. Now, in her book, Women Hating, Dworkin argued that the witch craze was a calculated patriarchal assault on women. Now, even in its own town, some of Kramer's comrades considered his treatise radical for the strength of its convictions. And in fairness, it certainly revealed evidence of fierce misogyny and gender bias. And definitely does by the 1970s standards. However, over 30 years later, Christopher McKay, who wrote The Hammer of the Witches, a complete translation of the Malleus Maleficarum, the published in 2009, echoed Dworkin, calling the Malleus a self-conscious attack on the female gender. Nevertheless, Dawkins' description of the witch hunt as genocide and her reference to the slaughter of nine million women is incredibly extreme. When researching, it comes to light that the death toll of both men and women is at about 45,000. There has been a claim 
that the reason the patriarchy divided women is it encouraged them to accuse one another. Now, some scholars have issue with different interpretations of this, though they all argued that women were generally better placed to make accusations than men. And all scholars found accusations against women were often made by a member of their own sex. Now, Dworkin's controversial remarks aside, Thomas and Macfarlane's original claim had some validity. Studies have found that women consisted of over 70% of all the accused in large parts of Europe, including central regions such as Holy Roman Empire, Poland, Hungary, as well as most of Scandinavia and much of the British Isles. Now, by using data collected from numerous small studies, it was able, you were able to estimate that women made up to around 75% of those accused in Europe during the period. Now, we know that more women than men were accused of witchcraft. However, we cannot obscure the fact that a significant 25% of the accused were, in fact, men. Now, only in recent years has the existence of male witches begun to be explored by academics. One of the earliest descriptions of the illicit witches' Sabbath reported the presence of sorcerers of both sexes. So it is out there, there is stuff out there that both men and women were both accused and they both could be witches. Now, when it is broken down by region, the surviving records show that in some areas male witches accounted for a substantial portion of the accused. So, I'm now going to hit you some boring figures. Very small amount. So, in Aragon, Spain, there was around 40%. In Finland, 50%. In Estonia, 60%. In Russia, 70%. 75% in Normandy and 92% in Iceland. So, this brings the idea that witches were almost always women would therefore not at all have matched with the lived experiences of the people residing in these areas. Even in places where women predominated among the accused, though, suspicion could still easily fall on men. Now, it can be seen just from the city of Salzburg and the region of Carinthia, both part of the Holy Roman Empire, but men made up a sizable 59% and 68% of the accused. Moving on to the stereotype of all witches are old. So, in addition to being female, the idea that witches were aged is practically an assumption of early modern witchcraft research. Now, Macfarlane estimated that as many as 80% of the accused in Essex were over 40. It was also has been backed by other scholars, and it is a solid majority of the accused were probably over the age of 50. However, it is difficult to be defi definitive as surviving records rarely noted the age of the accused. Nevertheless, research is underscored by the occurrence of elderly in popular contemporary portrayals of witches. Movies show 
witches as the elderly woman or the elderly portraying that of a young person so within the discovery of witches by reginald scott he had a quote by a kentish gentleman that described the defendant that was on trial now the description reads she was lame bleary eyed pale foul and full of wrinkles in 1646, John Gow, a minister, even complained that people were seeing witches in everyone. Everyone with a wrinkled face, furrowed brow, hairy lip, gobber tooth, it was said to be a witch. Now, some historians have argued that older women were more likely to be accused because of their contemporary belief that their age gave them the tendency to exhibit erratic and unpleasant behaviours. Just in case you're confused, this is a reference to the menopause. Now, yes, this is what they believed. The way they saw it was women's usually cold and moist bodies became increasingly dry as they stopped menstruating, which adversely affected their moods and made them susceptible to the devil's deception. Now, it also allegedly gave them a desire for moisture that made them jealous of younger, fertile women, causing friction within the communities. Again, while there is evidence to support the notion of the witch is stereotypically elderly, some recent scholarship presents a more complex picture. Now, this is where the stereotype starts to take a turn. Now, it shows, research shows that a majority of witches in Scotland were under the age of 50, and that older women at Augsburg appeared less often in trials after the 1700s. Now, this is when children became the primary target of suspicion. In fact, close to half of all accused witches in Wittenberg, Sirland, and Wurzburg Apologies if I've said those wrong, as well as the majority of those in Rothenburg were under 50 years old and majority were children. A number of popular contemporary sources appear to counter the traditional age narrative too. Artist Hans Baldung's artworks. He did two artworks, one called Three Witches and another called Witches Sabbath. Now, both include a mix of young and older women. Now, another one is the Malleus Maleficarum. Kramer was eager to stress that individuals of any age could be ensnared by evil. And he gives one example. The example he gives is where the devil has sought to corrupt a young virgin girl. Now, there are different passages one passage describes a 12 year old girl con copulating with incubi incubi might not be something you've heard before believed to be a demon many have different experiences different uh, readings on the demon um from my research the incubi is believed to be a sex demon that will technically sleep with its prey to give itself more life now this story is similar to a french judge called pierre de lancre 
Now, he recorded instances of a 13-year-old participating in sexual orgies at the Witches' Sabbath. And another story is a Scottish minister is described children accepting the devil's mark. So, the tides are changing. It is no longer an older woman. It is now children. And stories are coming out about children accepting the marks children allowing demons and it's coming to be that children are now being the chosen ones so this negates what temporary what contemporaries across europe believed that which was represented by someone elderly now when you dig deeper into the records of the witch trials of rothenberg roll it points out that very little was said about the haggard haggard appearance of the suspects. It was their actions that were focused on. Now, if their bodies were mentioned, it is often simply in reference to a witch's mark that has helped prove their guilt or how someone has searched for that witch's mark. Another thing to keep in mind as well is something that the Malleus suggested earlier. Now, a number of the elderly women prosecuted as witches, they may have been far younger when they first aroused suspicion. Now, for instance, in some German territories, an individual could only be prosecuted for practicing magic after receiving numerous accusations, meaning suspects could live for years before we get any legal record to their existence. Now, it isn't just the accuser. The accuser would need to cultivate support from their community for their accusations. And not only that, but the defendant, the person accused, could lodge a slander suit against the accuser. Now, contemporaries also saw the ability to cast spells as a transferable skill passed down through the generations. Now, Macfarlane himself acknowledges this. He highlights one case where a sorcerer named Joan Cunney claimed to have first learned witchcraft some 20 years before she was finally caught and prosecuted. So the idea that witches were mostly or at least of middle age is likely reasonable, at least in part. For the belief that they were also characteristically widowed, which Thomas insisted that many of them were widows, and Macfarlane supported this claim. He pointed out that they accounted for 40% of the accused women in England. Now, modern research has built on this, demonstrating that similar trends prevailed in other parts of the continent. Now, this research can also show a geographical variation again now, just to give a few examples, women, widowed women made up 7% of the accused in Mainz, 
19% in Sweden, 21% in Scotland, 23% in Rothenburg, 26% in Venice, 30% in Horn, 34% in Geneva, and 36% in the Jura region. Now, Kent itself held 38%. Now, research found that in actual fact, it was married women who commonly made up the majority of accused in these reasons, followed by widowed women, followed on by single women. Now, Thomas McFarlane came up with a hypothesis called Charity Refused. This was based on widowed women being dependent on community aid in order to survive economically. However, there are problems with this charity refused model. Firstly, it falls to acknowledge that the poor probably appear excessively vulnerable to suspicion simply because they were far, by far, the largest social group. Moreover, it is also true that those accused of witchcraft were not necessarily economically or social inferior to their accusers. Now, Malcolm Gaskill highlights this with the 1586 trial of Joan Cason in Kent. Now, Joan Cason is someone that I do hope to speak about on more on this podcast. But it was thought that she, in fact, was wealthier than the person who accused her. Now, indeed, in many cases, the victims of accusations were not especially aggressive, nor socially isolated. Many of those tried in Kent during the mid-17th century, for instance, were well-known faces in the community, and they could attest to their innocence by drawing support of friends they thought. However, sometimes it was used as a crutch or even a bargaining or scaremongering tactic. Now, Joan Carradine is one of these and again another person I hope to talk about. In 1610, she verbally assaulted Robert Greenstreet. Now, he was the mayor of Faversham, which is a town here in Kent. Now, she had become increasingly unhappy with his administration and a new mayor was elected in his place. However, decades later, after this had happened, when the witch hunts in England were at their height, Green Street took up office again. Within 12 days, he had Carradine thrown into the gals, thrown into the gal and shortly afterwards executed as a witch. Now, this leaves many questions. Was Joan Carradine a witch? Did she do something to the mayor? Or was the mayor just angry at her because she was a woman that stood up for what she believed and she believed he wasn't doing a good job? Okay, so the stereotype of the early modern witch that was presented by scholars such as Thomas and McFarlane. The image that a witch was elderly, female, widow, of limited social and economic means still has some merit. 
The evidence in favour of the Thomas McFarlane stereotype is most compelling when examined from a distance. However, while there seems to be an element of truth in this stereotype, drawing on modern monographs and in-depth regional studies, you can see some of the more serious flaws it has. For instance, take a recent scholarship on a male and child witches, as well as the social and legal dynamics behind accusations, which demonstrate they could be driven by factionalism and potentially take decades to reach court, where they may never even be examined. So, how then, in light of these findings, might we redefine the early modern European witch? So, broadly speaking, the accused was usually a married woman, not widowed. However, her particular situation would inevitably vary enormously according to time and geography. Differences in age, social status and financial power create more nuanced picture, making it hard to determine how these characteristics fit as part of an overarching archetype. Though we can say that the lower classes are well represented among the accused. Now, what becomes clear in all this research is the fact of relying on such stereotypes in the first place. Now, in order to represent the past with real accuracy and sensitivity, it's imperative a historian, which someday I hope to become, is attentive to enormous dynamism in everyday life of early modern Europe. Now, among the accused were the young, unmarried women, prominent men, children, the wealthy, the poor, and many others. Now, in addition to those that align more closely with the stereotype, now, Thomas and Macfarlane were pioneers writing in the 1970s when scholarly interest in the early modern European witch hunts was minimal. That the subject inspires so much passion and debate amongst academics today, it's a testament to their achievements. Now, the stereotype they've inspired is, however, something of a blunt instrument. Blunt instruments have their uses, have their uses of course, but they do encourage, but they don't encourage precision or accuracy. Now, by bringing together the best modern research with close reference to wide range of contemporary sources, I hope that this has promoted a more complex and cautiously argued, fascinating view of the early modern European witch hunts and its victims. I know it was a bit of a long one and I hope you did enjoy it. It was all about the stereotypes and how witches got their stereotypes and we're going to stick on the witch wavelength just a little while longer um, throughout the podcast. Um, Hopefully our next episode we will be talking about a book about a book that was written by Reginald Scott from Kent and I hope you enjoyed it and thank you for listening